There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Montana. She had childhood leukemia and suffered from medical PTSD. Let's talk about it. Uh, All right, we are rocking and rolling. And uh, I guess just to give a little bit of context... To our listeners, uh, they'll probably have already, if you listen to our Feel Good Friday episodes, you, you'll probably have already heard this story at length, uh, but Taylor's not here right now, because Taylor's at the emergency room. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we won't get, go too far into that, because that's not what this uh, conversation is about, but if anybody's yeah. wondering why the third microphone is just so quiet, it's because Donnie the Donut has taken his place, and Donut is a dog, and he doesn't <laughs> speak English. So, uh, But Donnie is, Donnie is here, and he's listening, and uh, we are joined by our friend Montana all the way from the Six. Yep. Six God. Hello, hello. Six God Montana <laughs> hanging out with us. Uh, and Montana, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you because I feel like, uh, you know, we so we have this, like, we have a list of, God, now I think it's... It's upwards of like three, maybe even close to 4,000 people that have applied to be on the show. And you applied a long time back. Um, and, then, and then funnily enough, like you, you were FaceTiming with my, my partner, Leah. And, and I think Leah was like, yeah, I'm seeing this guy named Jeremy. And, and you were like, Jeremy Saunders is a Sigway podcast? Like, fucking... <laughs> Tell him I've applied to be on the show, and so finally we we've gotten around to uh, to sitting down to talking to you about your life experience with with illness. And uh, you've I'm, heard it here, folks. You really need an inside track that's it. if you it, want to be it's on the all, podcast. It's all about who you know. It really is all <laughs> in who you know. Uh, but Montana, you've you have you have quite a history, um, and I guess. Uh, for before we dive into it, just just take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners, um, who you are and what you do. Sure. It's really incredible to be here. Yeah. Like you said, this has been something I've wanted to do for so many years. So I'm so happy that it's finally happening. And shout out to Leah. <laughs> um, yeah. So my name is Montana. Um, I work as an integrative wellness educator. So I do a lot of embodiment based mental health, um, holistic support for folks struggling with mental and physical health. And it's a direct result of all my, um, my whole life experience. I don't know where I'd be without everything I've been through. It's kind of shaped who I am. And that used to feel like something I needed to escape from and something Mm. I kind of wanted. I, I didn't know how to process that. And I kind of thought, well, if I, you know, because of what I've been through, it's too much. And like, Mm. I can't really go on. Um, But I feel like in supporting other people with their own experience, that's been like a really fundamental part of my own kind of wellness journey as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. This started uh, all the way back when you were a kid. And and one thing that I, I, I don't think we've really, like we've talked to people who, who are, um, and correct me if I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here, Brad, because you have a better memory than me. But we've we've talked to a number of people on the show who like are in their teens and they're currently dealing with cancer. Um, mm-hmm. And but I don't think we've really had much of an opportunity to talk to people who have had childhood cancer and then have gone on to grow up and live a you know a, a, a some a so far long life. Uh, uh, fingers crossed that you keep living longer than than today, Montana. <laughs> um, but uh, you, you, were, you were diagnosed with leukemia at a really young age, right? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with leukemia at age seven. Um, <laughs> and the good news was it was a pretty good prognosis. Um, and I was on chemotherapy for three years um, and was fortunate enough to go to sick kids in Toronto, which is, you know, world-class hospital. But like you said, like, 
it's weird because even a few decades prior to that, that would have been a life sentence. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think yeah, that crazy. part of my own journey through this is like trying to understand why that diagnosis and treatment continue to affect me in such a significantly traumatic way. And yeah. then realizing, oh, there's not that many people who have been through this experience. So it's kind, we're kind of learning as we go, like what happens to someone when they deal with that type of illness at such a young age and how yeah. that affects them on, yeah. you it's know, so, onwards. It's so interesting. You, you say like, you know, that like you had a fairly quote unquote good prognosis and, um, what I know you mean and what I, what I've come to learn through doing this podcast is that you mean physically you had a good prognosis yes. because the, the trauma that comes with being diagnosed with an illness and with like any form of cancer, any, any type of, uh, chronic illness, um, any, any like really challenging, anytime you have to go to the hospital and really yeah. like start to inquire about your physical health, that that's a, a, a really traumatic experience to deal with. And so as we've started to learn, trauma lives on, yeah. um, oftentimes much longer than the physical illness does. I think the other thing that really stood out to me too is in that same sentence, you said good prognosis and then followed that up with three months, three years, three years of chemotherapy. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a lot of years, especially mm. when, you know, that's like that at that point in your life, that's, that was basically like half of your life. And, up and, to that point, you and know? not to assume, but I guess you're saying a fairly good prognosis because you, you must've got like a children's wish or something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> did you, did you cash oh, I never, in? <laughs> I never cashed in on my children's wish. No. What? I know. I know. Cause they gave it to me and I like, what? I had this weird I don't know. At that age, I was like, no, but I know the, pro you know, I know that the survival rate is very high. And it's like, you shouldn't even be fucking thinking about that shit at eight years old. Right. Yeah. But I didn't feel worthy of that. Wow. Um, you and I are yeah. so different. I, I, was, I was around that age and I was like, I can have whatever I fucking want. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Send me on a shopping spree. I know. Oh, what a fucking oh man. Dumb dumb. Maybe I'll still cash in. I mean, yeah. I kind of, this guys, this kind of feels like my, my children's wish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's worse than Jer's children wish of a shopping <laughs> yeah, spree. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's pretty cool. But I do want to say, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no. Okay. No, just what Brian was saying. It's like, you would think that, I think one of my, my biggest sort of driving forces in my life has been like, there was never any medical professional who ever said that to me. Mm. You know what I mean? Who never like acknowledged this is traumatic, you know, yeah. or even used the word trauma. So I didn't really feel like I was, I felt like once I was cured, even though like that, those three years I was living in a hospital, you know, the treatments were very tr difficult. I had needles put in every part of my body, mm. you know, on and on and on. Like once I was declared cured, like it was kind of like, and we're done. Right. Mm. There was mm. never, never an acknowledgement of the trauma. Yeah. Mm. Back out into the world you go. Like you're good. Yeah. You know, just wipe the hands clean, mm -hmm. live your life. It's an interesting thing too about like, I mean, there's so many specialists in, in healthcare uh, that, you know, an oncologist who treats a specific type of cancer is, you know, sub is like their job is to like cure the cancer, the physical yes, thing. Exactly. But like they sometimes don't have, I mean, most of the, well, I shouldn't assume. Well, here we but, go, Brian, but, be careful. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta be, be careful. really careful you, what I we, say. We, there's a lot of people listening. What, what I'll say is their primary focus is to yes. do their best job mm. to make the patient physically better. And, and it's not that that's, that's no fault of the person because I'm sure that the doctors care about what they're doing and the well-being of their patient beyond just the cancer diagnosis. But it's not their you specialty. Said it right there. It's a to, special, they're a specialist. Yeah, right. They exactly. specialize in one area. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, the, that's the job they've so, been trained to do and that's what they are working to do every single day right. with every single patient that continuously comes through their door mm -hmm. day after day after day. And I was going to, I was going to say like, you know, this was, your experience was 20 years ago. I wonder how it's changed now, but I even think back to my mom's experience with cancer, yeah. you know, five years ago. And for her, there wasn't support uh, in terms of her mental health and she really suffered uh, and has continued to suffer since then. Mm. I'm so for, sorry to hear that. For, for context for our listeners, can you, can you take us back to that, 
that time when you were a kid? Um, like, do you, I, I have a hard time remembering a lot of the stuff that happened in my childhood. And I, I think I just, I just have a bad memory, but do you remember like those early days Were there conversations that you were having with your parents and like, what, what did, what did that look like? And, you know, at seven years old, like, were you able to really comprehend the gravity of what was happening around you? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I, um, sometimes I wish I had a bad memory. I like remember everything, hmm. you know, especially those things. I think, especially when you, I don't know, for me, it's like, there's moments in my life that I just, they're so strong in my memory. And uh, it's very difficult for me to, to forget or move on or let go because it just feels so ingrained in my experience. Um, yeah, so I remember the whole thing. I remember like having very, very severe pain in different parts of my body, like screaming, crying in the middle of the night. I remember being rushed to the emergency room. I remember being diagnosed. I remember like the fear in everyone's face, including my parents and all the doctors around when I was diagnosed. Um, I remember going to the hospital. I remember the first time I like got, I went in for my first day of chemo. And the first thing you have to do is go get your like pinky poked. Mm. Um, and I bawled my eyes out and like, I remember, um, you know, the, the finger poke lady, she would say, that's okay. Like all the kids cry the first time. And there was something in me that just said, no, like I need to be better or for yeah. something I need to, you know, I, I, I need to just endure this. And also I don't want everyone around me to be upset because yeah. it's making everyone, you know, people are looking to me and they don't want me to be feeling this way. And so I have to just kind of put on a smile and just go through this, you know? Mm. And, um, Honestly, there was a sense of safety that I felt at a certain point when I got used to it, when I got used to leaving school to get chemotherapy and missing a ton of school, um, losing my hair, being on steroids, um, you know, having to kind of get shuttled. You know, there's like this needle that they'd put in your spine um, and, you know, in your legs and your arms. And you're just kind of getting shuttled around and having needles put into every part of your body. And there was something where it was just kind of like, okay, this is what you do. And these people know what's best and they're going to do it. And, but the thing is like, I felt really sick and also, you know, treatment for cancer in and of itself is, is difficult. You don't feel good while you're on it, but then you're going in and the doctor is saying, okay, you're doing great. You know, like, Mm -hmm. so I think that just even the signals in my body of what pain meant Mm -hmm. and what, good meant like I had no idea I just knew that I had to defer to these authority figures or I could die I also was super exposed to everyone else that was suffering and struggling and you know being like kind of growing up within that environment of the eighth floor of sick kids is super intense experience yeah um shuttling from that and then kind of back to school it was always very very confusing for me because I was living in these very different worlds at the same time and didn't really understand how to how to integrate that. Mm-hmm. I'm, you, a, I'm imagining how difficult that would be as a kid. There's something that you, you just said that, that really stands out to me. And it's like that, that like I can picture your parents and the doctors like standing around and you, and they're concerned and you know that they're concerned. So you want you to like a, a, as a seven year old, it's so hard to imagine having the language to be able to like communicate with them yeah. and talk through those feelings. That's and, fucking hard and as, like, a, as an adult. Totally. Right. And know? so like, imagine I'm imagining you being seven years old, like just trying to put that smile on because exactly. you know that you, you at least think that like that will help them feel better, yeah. which is, you know, incredibly challenging. We we were talking recently about the challenge at, like a, a patient going through treatment has caregivers, but oftentimes they're providing care for the caregivers because yeah. exactly. you know, they're, they're, they can understand what they're going through, but other people sometimes, oftentimes struggle to, yeah. to understand that. Yeah. And I've always been incredibly sensitive. So I, I could sense that my parents were so afraid, you know, and so mm-hmm. I just wanted to do everything I possibly could to help them. And then the other thing is that like, 
everything at the hospital feels so intense because it is because my life is at stake. Right. Right. So I'm being told if you get a fever, we need to rush you to emergency room. Mm. You know, you need to be careful of the sun of microwave. You know, they they tell you all these things because they want you to be safe. But like I'm internalizing that everything is unsafe, mm, like right. everything is unsafe. And that mm. I am this fragile person that needs to be like cared for at every moment. And anything that ever happens to me could become incredibly detrimental. Mm. And like, I think that's something that is, you know, that's really bit was ingrained in my head. The other part of that is that I have a family history of eating disorders. Um, and there was an intense focus on my weight and my height, you know, and all of these kind of things that they check. Right. Right. And so I even think to the way that they would do that. And I'm like, fuck, I wish they, I hope they've changed it because there's something about a developing prepubescent child who is on steroids and therefore gaining weight, um, being like, having their weight and height recorded. And I remember the doctor saying like, you know, you're 80th percentile on weight and like 20th on height. And I just, because everything was so intense around me, that seemed wrong. It yeah, seemed like right, I was yeah. doing something wrong. And that really. And you know, at, at such a, such a formative time of, of your like development of your brain yeah. development of the things that you're yeah. like internalizing those things. And yeah, I imagine that that would be fucking traumatic. Speaking of like the, those formative years, I I can't help but wonder like how, especially in retrospect, how um like do you do you now do you see how going through that period of three years at seven up to ten how that affected your social life, um. You know, like I'm, I'm thinking of when, when we, like when we were that age, like that is, that is such a integral part of like developing who you are as a, as a person, your personality, the way you interact with others. Mm. Um, I know that you were saying you spent a lot of time like living in the hospital. How did it affect your, your social life growing up? Yeah, that's, yeah, it's an interesting question. It certainly did. I think I remember, um, when I was in the hospital, um, there was, I, I'm, it was probably some, a social worker or something that sort of said, you know, um, we can come to your school and we can explain to the kids what you're going through. And there's this Charlie Brown episode about, um, one of the characters I think actually gets leukemia, oh, uh, that we could show to the class. And it's interesting because my reaction was no. And I think my reaction was no, because I was so fucking embarrassed and I already had kind of internalized some shame. Like this is not cool. (laughs) I am Mm. losing my hair. I'm gaining weight. I'm like going through this weird experience that no one else really understands. And I definitely felt very just different, you know, Mm -hmm. than other people. And I tried to hide that. And I tried my hardest to like, you know, be liked and and fit in with everyone else. Um, But it was always difficult for me. And I think the intensity of um, this life or death thing that I was going through, I definitely sort of transferred into, and I did this, I've done this throughout my whole life, is sort of transferred it to other things in my life. So I thought academics was like super important. Mm. And there was also something about the validation that you get from an authority figure, much like in the hospital. I was like, okay, I want the doctors, I want to be a good patient Mm -hmm. and I want to follow the rules because it feels life or death. And I feel like I felt the same way in school. I need to be the perfect student and I need to be the perfect weight. And I need to starve myself in order to do so. So like these things were really plaguing me. Um, And I think part of it was I just really, really wanted to fit in and belong with other kids. And I think, you know, maybe looking back, if you talk to other kids, they'd be like, yeah, you were like, we don't know what you're talking about. But for me in my head, I felt super fucking alien. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's it's also um, such a a contrast in experiences between like a, a seven year old who isn't going through a traumatic experience in terms of like, you know, the carefreeness of like mm-hmm. just going to school and painting pictures and do like finger painting and doing such like silly mundane things. But yeah. then in contrast to that, you're like, I, I don't want to say that you like grow up or become mature through experiences like that, but there's something about going through a, a an, an incredibly uh, tough, challenging time that, that 
makes you that gives you a different perspective on the world. And mm. I imagine that that's amplified when you're seven years old. And the other things that your sort of um, classmates would care about are there's there's probably a pretty big difference in terms of them thinking about their own mortality and you, you know, fighting against this disease. Mm. That uh, just an interesting little thing here. Why Charlie Brown? Why? was the name of that episode, uh, and it originally aired in 1990 and was nominated for an Emmy. Wow. Um, and for decades, Charlie, Why Charlie Brown Why has helped children to understand what happens when someone they love is sick. I've never, I've never heard of that. Wow. That's super, that's, super interesting. I need to watch it. I was going to yeah. say, have you ever watched it? No, because I, I never have. I'm, I, I, I'm not a fan of Charlie Brown, but I feel like I have to watch that episode. It seems know, ahead of its time. It does <laughs> seem ahead of its time, yeah. Um, yeah. Do, you, so, you know, the... Fast forwarding a little bit, do you do you remember what the experience was like when your when your journey through um, through battling leukemia came to a close, came to a, a, an end? I mean, I I f- basically the chemo would kind of you know it started out really intense the first year, let's say, and then it sort of became you know fewer and fewer between. Um, I don't remember exactly being kind of declared cured, but I, mm. um, I do remember that like it kind of just happened at the end, I guess at the end of elementary school. And then it kind of feels like grade six was this new period where now I started to realize that I was, um, you know, chubby or, you know, how I looked mm. and I was entering this big middle school with like all these different classes. And I started to kind of realize that I maybe looked different than other people or and I felt more and more different and mm. these social dynamics were becoming more intense. And, you know, like our generation, I guess, was the first that kind of started to have ICQ and MSN and all these like social media things mm-hmm. at a young age. And I remember just thinking, oh, like I in order to fit in, because again, <laughs> I had, I think the thing is I had all of this, my, my nervous system had been conditioned to be in complete fight or flight. Mm. Um, and I, So I couldn't really turn that off. I now knew how fragile mortality was. And I now kind of saw my body as diseased. It's not like that feeling goes away. You know, you're like, oh, my body is kind of the property almost of these doctors. And of course, everything they're doing is, you know, it's, I always have to be careful when I talk about this because I'm not, they, they saved my life. Right. I had a lot of anger towards medical professionals for a long time, but it's so nuanced. Um, but the idea that my body is mine Mm. and, um, that I need to care for it and that it's not against me, Mm. uh, it was very, very confusing. And so, um, I really rapidly in grade six started to develop an eating disorder where I just basically starved myself. Where, Where did you feel that anger came from towards medical professionals? Um, I think that the... I mean, there were certain instances that I can point to that were clearly just, I don't know, ignorant, but and beyond. Like, for example, there was this oncologist, I talk about this um, often, but there was an oncologist that would call me Jelly Belly and kind of make fun of my weight. Whoa. And that, like, really, um, I really internalized that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but, and then there were also, I mean, it kind of amplified when I was 17 and I was diagnosed with colitis because at that point it really, really felt like the amount that I was struggling mentally was not being acknowledged or understood. And I think that the problem is like, once you're in the medical system as a kid, you're treated a certain way and there's resources. And even if they weren't really understanding the mental health, at least there was something that felt supportive there that I knew that if there was something wrong, I could go to them. But then once you're an adult, you're kind of left on your own. And um, there were all these very confusing things I felt about my body and about life itself. Mm. And I didn't really know who to go to. Um, I I was very, honestly, I was very angry that they saved my life for a long time because I Mm. felt like my life wasn't worth living. And I didn't actually know how to care for myself or even feel connected to myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I felt like they had kind of, by saving my life, created a lot, a lot of suffering in the process and then kind of left me on my own. And I didn't mm. understand how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that transition from like like kids' hospitals to adult clinics is notoriously uh, challenging. 
And like, like to the point where there are, you know, there are specific conferences held for trying to find ways to like ease that transition. And there's a lot of patients out there that have had that experience, myself included, where going from the child hospital to the adult hospital, like the things that oftentimes are missed and, and aren't considered when making that transition um, can be really like scary and really, mm-hmm. again, makes, make you feel almost left alone. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're at the kids' hospital, you know, it's like your parents are involved. Everyone, like there's, it, it, it's like there's community, community that's around you. And then you go to the adult clinic and it's like, well, you're an adult now. So legally, like we can't have, we can't be coddling you. Like you're, mm-hmm. you've got to suck it up and, and like do it yourself. And, it's, and there's like almost, you, you kind of just feel naked, you know, e- like you're, even from like the the paintings on the walls and stuff, it's just oh, everything. It, yeah, which is, everything about it, which yeah. is so crazy because like I I'm 32 years old, and when I'm sick, <coughs> I feel like I'm 10 years old. Like yeah. I, I, yeah. Want, yeah. I want I want I mm-hmm. want yeah. fucking cartoons on the walls, and I want to mm. I want to be cared for like I'm 10 years old. I don't want you to make me feel like like I'm in this beige mm-hmm. like exactly. scary sterile cold sterile place yeah 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 exactly yeah it's cool. i mean brian it's, it it seems trivial like i'm sure someone might hear that and think that that's trivial this i the like mm. the painting on the walls and the compa- no, like, but that, that is that's a fucking real thing i legitimately so, <laughs> so real and mm. like this actually it's so cool that you said that because it's something that i remember the event because you know when I got diagnosed with colitis later, um, when I was 17, like I spent so much time in my life in an emergency room and in hospital rooms, just like staring at the white wall, staring at the clock, feeling completely imprisoned. There were months at a time that I was hospitalized. And it, it honestly is, there's something about even just the lack of color on the wall that makes you feel like you're, I mean, you're imprisoned. Right. Mm, And, um, the, the lack of, of consideration of, and not only, I think about this a lot too, just even from the doctor's perspective and the nurse's perspective, you know, because Mm. they're living in this, they're working in this sterile environment and that also affects them. (laughs) And then it kind of becomes this, this ripple effect. Mm, mm -hmm. And the, the other thing is like, coming back to this specialization thing, um, just coming back to like where the anger comes from, there's, there was a lack of understanding of how one thing could lead to another or, you know, so for example, when I did start to lose weight in grade six, you know, I would literally carry on a calorie book. My goal was zero pounds. Like, I don't know. And I started Mm -hmm. to lose weight. And of course I was still being monitored at the hospital. Um, and I remember the doctor kind of almost threatening me and saying like, if you lose one more pound, we're admitting you to the anorexia ward. But no one mm. really sat me down and said like, hey, what's going on? Right. So I just took that as a threat. And then my eating disorder kind of spiraled into binge eating and all these other shameful behaviors um, because I just felt such a lack of control and I didn't really understand what was going on. Wow. And yeah. th- this was this happening around the same time as the, as the colitis? So this was kind of <laughs> the, this was happening. So it started, I would say I started um, eating disordered behaviors in grade six, pretty much as soon as I was declared cured of cancer. Mm. Uh, and then because I had so much anger and hatred and fear about my body and it was like another way for me to punish myself mm. and, and feel control out of what I felt was out of control in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then that, last so I had so much anxiety and so much depression for all those years and I remember being 17 and just thinking and put so much pressure on myself like I said in academics and just a nervous system that was primed for finding stress Mm -hmm. um and I remember being 17 and being on like summer on winter break um in Florida staying with my grandmother and just having this feeling like I think I was like, just couldn't stop drinking Diet Coke, like by the pool. And I was like, I don't like something's going to break. Like, I can't have this much anxiety um, for long. I feel like something in my body is going to respond at a certain point, even though I was really, I was the best at hiding all of this too. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I was the girl that smiled through everything. So no one really knew how much I was suffering. Um, 
And then I kind of just knew, I was like, I almost felt like I needed it. Like I needed my body to break again in order for people to see how much I was struggling in order for me to even know how to get out of this hole that I had dug for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was started experiencing very, very severe um, abdominal cramps, started to uh, shit blood. (laughs) And once that happened, I was pretty much lying on the bathroom floor. This was 17 Christmas break. Um, And then like, yeah, through January of that year. Uh, I remember my parents were out of town and me not wanting to bother anyone or make anyone feel afraid. I was like, I'm not really feeling well. I can't really move. Um, I'm literally was pretty much like lying on the floor at that point. And they were like, do you think, should we come home? I'm like, no, I think I'm just going to call an ambulance. And they knew that I was, I would only do that if I was really actually scared for my life. So they were like, okay, we should probably come home. Um, so then pretty much after that, they diagnosed me, they said, you know, your entire colon is ulcerated and it's pretty significant. And you now have this new chronic illness. Was that, was that moment, you know, I can't help but think that the history that you had with leukemia and like all of the, all of the hardships that came with that, that very intense fight over the span of three years. Um, everything that came with that physically, everything that came with that mentally, everything that came along with that, that was, you know, changing the way that you viewed your own body and the way that you felt about yourself. When you got the diagnosis of colitis, did that, did it feel like, how did that feel? Was it, was it a feel of feeling of, of, of like hopelessness or, or, you know, was it a feeling of like, Oh fuck, like this is a sequel to a movie that I didn't ask for, you know, like what was the, what was the, the mental process there? I guess, I guess, was it, was that process like a trigger for remembering everything you went through when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it it was crazy because it was almost as if no time had passed. It was like we were in the same routine of like, okay, Montana is sick. You know, everyone get into their position. So like my dad, thank God, you know, I'm so lucky. My dad would stay with me at night. My mom would stay with me during the day. You know, everything, it literally just felt like no time had passed at all. And I was Mm. now, it felt you know, like fate was just like, okay, you're going to be the sick person and you're going to be ill. And, um, you know, it it kind of just made me feel like all of my fears were were true, you know? And I I think that was so difficult about it. I mean, at first when you get a diagnosis, because I was, you know, pretty much on death's door at that point, there is something that's very like, okay, thank God. Thank you for identifying what, what is wrong so that I can, um, start to feel better. So, but it's crazy. Even the treatments are not that different. Like Mm. I start getting pumped with steroids again and I'm like, Oh fucking God, like prednisone, you know, I could write a whole like saga about my relationship with prednisone, but it's, did you uh, you get moon face? Did you, did you? Oh yeah. yeah, Oh yeah. yeah. I've had moon face pretty much, you know, off and on. I can look back at pictures from when I was seven Mm. till when I was 25 and be like moon face, not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've been on prednisone many, many years of my life, um, off and on. And, uh, so, so yeah, so it's like, oh my God, I'm right back where I started, but you know, at least, at least with cancer, there's an identifiable goal and there's a kind of an end to it. But with a chronic illness, there's, there's no end and there's no cure. And so that was the most, I mean, that, that in and of itself, the idea that I now had this chronic illness that could come at any time that could wipe me out, um, that I had, I, I had no idea how to navigate that. For, for you just said it right there, but like for, for our listeners who aren't aware, um, can you tell us a little bit about ulcerative colitis? Like there, there is no cure. It's a, it's a disease that is, I, I believe like we don't, we don't really know the actual root cause of it. Um, I know that it was thought that stress, um, is, is something that could have been a, a, a causal, a, a sort of cause to the, to the disease, but now they, they just see it as a stress is like, something that can actually just make it more intense or exacerbate it. Do you, can you give us a bit of insight into like what, what is ulcerative colitis? Did I say yeah. that? Ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis. Ulcer- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, ulcerative. So- ulcerative. That yeah, was, yeah. I, I said ulcerative. <laughs> yeah. 
ulcerative colitis. <laughs> yeah, if you're British, it might Most work. British would have made sense. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so um, Crohn, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis kind of live within the same family of under the umbrella of inflammatory bowel disease, which is different than irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so, infl- yeah, so that's, so IBD is kind of the, the term for it. Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, I feel like a lot of autoimmune disorders have similar thing where it's just kind of for some reason. Um, so for, for colitis, it would be localized to the colon, but for Crohn's, it would be the entire digestive tract from, you know, right. esophagus all the way to rectum. So essentially, you know, it's your body attacking itself. And uh, so it leads to ulceration and, um, you know, malabsorption of nutrients and pretty significant pain, Mm. discomfort, and just malaise when you can't really eat and you're not getting the nutrients you need and you have pretty significant, you know, um, sores on on your digestive tract. It can be pretty difficult, painful, yeah. um, scary. And you've had some like intense surgeries in the past, right? When, when, like because of your colitis? Yeah. So essentially when I was diagnosed with colitis, it became a lot more complicated because of the, the cancer diagnosis. Um, so there's certain medications that most people use for treatment for Crohn's or colitis, the biologics family, mm-hmm. um, that, actually have a, a slight increased risk of lymphoma, leukemia, cancer. Oh, fuck. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Yeah. So that was, that was something that was incredibly, incredibly difficult for me was, um, you know, they didn't know what to do with me. And I also didn't know what, it felt like a lot of pressure for, for me to have to come to these, because they were said, okay, well, you can go on biologics, they could increase your risk of cancer. Like they would give me all the options, but nobody knew what was best, right? And so it was kind of left up to me. And that was very scary because I just didn't know what, cho- it didn't feel like I was making, none of the choices right. felt like they were going to lead to a good result. Yeah. And I had no idea how to even come to an understanding of, of what to do. So essentially for the first few years of the colitis, I would get really, really sick. I would go to the emergency room. I'd be put on prednisone. I'd be put mm-hmm. on steroids. It would kind of get better over time, but you know, you can't be on these things forever. Like they start to lose their effectiveness. They're mm-hmm. not good for you to be on long-term. <laughs> yeah. um, they cause significant mental health con- issues. And, uh, that was just sort of a bandaid. And through that, I was in undergrad. I was trying just like in high school and just like in, in, in elementary, I was very used to living this weird double life where I would be in the emergency room, be really, really sick, and then put on a smile and try really hard to fit in with everyone in undergrad. Um, meanwhile, becoming more and more depressed and anxious and just like, so scared about what was going on in my life and how I was going to do this the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that hit a breaking point in fourth year university (laughs) Um, when they basically said like, you're really sick and, you know, we need to make a decision. And I just Mm -hmm. felt like going on the biologics, Mm -hmm. I would probably eventually have to get surgery anyway. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to have to do that and have an increased risk of cancer. So I was like, okay, let's just, you know, you say that it's a cure. If you take out my colon, theoretically, I don't have colitis anymore. So, okay, like, let's do that. That, um, that that's such a, I just want to highlight the, the craziness of like when you have to make that decision, um, because there are instances where, you know, your healthcare team will come to you and say, like, look, there's different options for what we can do. And, you know, you have option A, B, and C, and depending on your lifestyle, you know, your life best we can sort of describe to you what it's going to be like, but you have, then, then you actually have to make that decision. And, um, uh, I'm pretty familiar with that because my mom, when she had bladder cancer, they gave her three treatment options and Mm -hmm. she basically had to think about it for two weeks and then choose one. And she took it upon herself to go and like, you know, meet with people who had gone through with different procedures. She was taking the advice of, of the, one of the doctors in particular really sat with her and kind of worked through the options. But at the end of the day, it's so hard to feel like you've made the right decision because all of them, they're all more often than not, they all suck. And they're all going to change your life. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so you'll, (laughs) there's, it's easy to feel 
negatively towards mm. those decisions because they do change your life in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, much like when I was going through the cancer, there was no real acknowledgement of, of, Hey, this is hard and it's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, it right, was yeah. the same kind of thing where, you know, like we kind of talked about the transition to adult hospitals is very difficult. I would get really, really sick in a flare and be hospitalized and call my, the specialist and they'd be like, okay, we can see you in six months. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do for the next six months? You know what I mean? So um, I definitely didn't feel like I had any support. I could hardly speak to my gastroenterologist, let alone have this like sit down where we could talk about the options. I honestly, you know, um, felt like I was being cared for by people who had very high regard in the community, but in terms of their ability to to, uh, talk to me, I, I felt completely alone. Were you, yeah. Was like therapy um, ever a part of your your healing? Like like as as a, as a youth, um, what's your what's your history with therapy? Yeah, I um I remember being an undergrad and just being like, okay, I am because I was so desperate for autonomy, um, so that even when I was diagnosed with colitis in grade twelve, we nobody wanted it to affect what I was supposed to do. So my idea was I was going to go to Queens and I was going to go do global development. I wanted to kind of, I was so desperate, especially being a patient so much of my life for this idea of like, okay, maybe now I can really feel free and really explore who I am besides all this stuff. Right. Mm. Um, So I remember being an undergrad and just being, you know, feeling like my depression and anxiety were getting worse and worse because the thing is when you have a chronic illness, like anytime my stomach would hurt, I'd be so scared. Cause I'm like, yeah. is this a flare? Am I causing this to myself? How do I get out of this? What do I do? You know, I, I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying to, I'm trying to fit in. I'm trying to do well in school. Um, so I remember in that point and then, you know, having to like go to the hospital, like I said, off and on. Um, I remember at that point going in, uh, there was like student services, I guess, mental health was, uh, therapy was part of it. They were provide, they would give you like 10 free sessions and I remember going and she was kind of like, yeah, this is sort of over my pay grade, you know, right, like this yeah. isn't really what I do. And so that was kind of the response I felt like I get got a lot um, because oftentimes we were like, yeah, the anxiety you're talking about kind of makes sense in the scope of your life. So, yeah, the, I don't know. <laughs> the, when, when you when you mentioned um, talking to the doctor and the doctor sort of um threatening you to to eat to gain weight um and sort of acknowledging the fact that you had disordered disordered eating habits um that really struck me because it is interesting how um you know like it I would have never thought before this conversation if you said you know uh disordered eating could be a result of of childhood cancer um, I just wouldn't have put two and two together, but then when you lay it out mm. the way that it happens, mm. it makes so much sense. Like the con- the control thing, the the emphasis on weight through the cancer treatment, um, and I I just think like I'm so surprised that like shouldn't these professionals be aware of these things? Because as soon as you lay it out for me, I'm like that makes a lot of sense that that mm. could happen, and um, it it makes me wonder too. Like did did you ever um, end up speaking to anybody openly about your disordered eating before your colitis diagnosis? Or did, did that just sort of go on throughout that whole period of time? It kind of went on through the whole period of, of time. I mean, I, I, tr- I, I didn't, I was so ashamed and I didn't really know how, who to reach out to or how to reach out. Um, Cause I, I mean, I thought that, you know, like punishing myself was, was the right way to go about it. And it did feel like it was giving me some sense of control in my life. Like, you know, there's something very seductive about these ideas we have about if I'm a certain weight, everything will be okay. Mm. If I, you know, if this external thing happens, then, then everything will be safe in my life. And I almost feel like I needed those things to hold on to during the darkest times in a weird way. Mm-hmm. I needed the idea that something could make everything better, even if it was something so destructive um, as that. And, and I think there's another huge link between eating disorders and I've met so many people with Crohn's and colitis who also have eating disorders, because again, it kind of, if, if eating makes you feel pain, 
then you start to develop and like the, the steroid prednisone, it really is difficult, especially as a young person to have your face blow up and to be gaining weight and to have your um, hunger system all you know messed with. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a huge link, but no one ever really talks to you about it. It's just sort of through my own work that I've, that I've realized that. And then beyond that, like, I remember being an adult and even finding research that people with cancer or children with cancer develop, um, you know, PTSD, depression, anxiety, suicide at higher rates than the average population and being blown away by that research, which makes total sense. But it kind of was like, oh, my God, I'm not alone in this. I'm not crazy. I don't just have one diagnosis after another because I'm fated to failure, but actually all these things kind of link together and make total sense. It's it's interesting because my, my like lay person, like before, definitely before doing this podcast, I would have thought, oh, if somebody had childhood cancer and was cured, they probably have this like really inherently optimistic perspective on life mm. because like they've been through a huge challenging time and, you know, they've come out on the other side, quote unquote, okay. But then I think of like my experience going to therapy and I'm like, oh my God, that, that breakup with that person I dated for two weeks when I was 12 years old, fucking fucked me up in this way and influences my life in this way. And like, I make decisions like this because of that moment. Like, geez, I wonder, I wonder what like type of influence being in the hospital for three years as a seven year old would have. I mean, but but that's the thing about the nuance of all this is that like, yes, uh, you and we have heard this on the show that you know people going through something at a young age, like myself, mm. oftentimes, or it's, it can happen where that that gives that person a perspective on life that leads to uh, a lot of positivity, uh, a lot of a lot of things in their life that makes them see the world in a certain perspective that perhaps like not everybody has. And like, that's the plus side. Mm-hmm. And some people have that experience. Some people have the complete opposite experience. But yep. even those people that have the experience of the positive side of it, there's still all the fucking shit. Like everything mm-hmm. that we experience, yeah. everything that we go through in life is going to have two sides exactly. to, the, to the same experience. So, and uh, there's the positive and there's the negative. Like, the, Jesus Christ, I can't also, imagine having a fucking child. You know, yeah. and like, like I, I, yeah. I feel like if I had a kid, every single thing that I said or that I did around that kid, I would constantly be like, "Did I just fuck? Did I just fuck you up for life? Also, like, did I just completely alter your you'll life?" You'll never know the things that actually <laughs> you'll never connect know. with them because you'll, there's you'll things never that know. you'll 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 do without even thinking about it's it. It's the that things would, that you think that are would, so trivial right. that just last forever and ever and ever. But uh, Montana, you you like you mentioned too, like I, I mean, to other people you would have seemed like the happiest, yeah. like every, like happy go lucky things are going well. But like, there are people who, you know, want people around them to feel like, you know, that they're managing the thing, their, their own internal struggles. Okay. And like feel good. I mean, I'm that type of person where I care more about how people around me feel about how I'm being than than I do my own feelings sometimes. And then sometimes I end up bearing the brunt of, the emotional toll of holding those mm-hmm. things in and um, it sucks. It's, it can be really hard to deal with. And so you start doing uh, like you have different coping mechanisms and you're doing, you, you develop um, these bad habits that, you know, aren't good for you. And in the end you need to be able to talk about these things so that you can start to understand them better and address them and, and manage them. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts speaking of the the like the positive outcomes of of the hardships that we've been through montana can you can you kind of walk us through the work that you do today 
Yeah, sure. I have so many thoughts rolling through my head now um, based on everything you're saying, because I think I think that, you know, finding the the recognizing it's not even finding because it was always there. Right. But like Mm. recognizing the light, um, the strengths, the skills like we can think that these things happen to us and they do and they're part of our story. But it's like you can react to it or cope with it in a number of ways. And like for me to start to realize, oh, wait, I'm not weak or something to be ashamed. There's no shame in what I've been through. Actually, there's a lot of strength in overcoming it, or even just, even if something doesn't seem strong, like, you know, not feeling like I could go on a day longer and yet doing so, or like continuously reaching out for support, even when I didn't feel like I was really getting what I needed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and then recognizing like all of the, um, insights and wisdom because I think in a lot of ways like when your life is interrupted by illness from seven until today uh, we didn't even get into the surgeries but um uh but after after that I mean I was after having my colon removed and then I had basically had a perforated duodenal ulcer where it was an emergency surgery because the first surgery had caused a perforation, a hole in my small intestine. Um, So I had to get an emergency surgery for that, which again led to a lot of anger Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because there there couldn't even really have been an acknowledgement that that Mm -hmm. happened because that would lead to a lawsuit potentially. Right. So, and yet another thing that's out of your control, completely out of my control. Um, I then had an ostomy. So, that's like an opening, uh, you know, part of your small intestine is sticking out of your body with a bag on top. Of course, having that in undergrad, again, trying to keep up with everyone. I mean, the expectations I put on myself were so insane. Like I thought I was going to go get surgery and then go right back to to school, you know, and um, I could hardly like do groceries for myself because after these, these surgeries are very, very major, you know, anytime you do surgery on your intestines or your digestive system, it's very significant. So, um, I wasn't even allowed to like, I couldn't even buy groceries for myself, but I so desperately just like wanted to return back to normal. I remember my dad, like driving from Toronto to Kingston just to like buy groceries for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, a smile on my face. Were you living on your own too? Like going to university at the time or, or Um, yeah, I had a roommate and Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Um yeah, it was it was really crazy. I yeah, I could, you know, talk forever about just going through all of that. Mm. Um but then and then I was so scared to get another surgery by the same surgeon 6 months later. This was going to be the biggest one where they basically reverse uh they they create this like internal pouch mm-hmm. in lieu of a colon. Um, and at first I really didn't want to, because I was like, okay, I almost died from the first surgeries. I don't think I can go through another one. Um, but then living with an ostomy for six months in undergrad, you know, basically hardly leaving my apartment just because of all the shame and anxiety I had about living with that. I was like, okay, I'll just go through with it. So that finally I can start my life and feel normal or whatever that means. Um, that surgery was very, very difficult for me. It took me like over a year to recover from it. Um, so I was pretty much in at that, after that, I kind of moved home and I was like, okay, I can't, you know, I had graduated undergrad somehow by that point. And I just sort of lay in my bed, in my bed that I grew up in at my parents' place and just pretty much lay in bed for like a year and a half. And I think it was, um, finally my body just giving out and being like okay you can't actually just run on adrenaline anymore your body is is I, I felt I you know I, I felt like it was the end for me honestly mm-hmm. um just finally all of the mental physical emotional effects just sort of came to a head where I was like okay they've this is all that they could do for me um they've removed my colon they took out my gallbladder because I had gallstones because of the chemo they like took out all these organs And I feel as sick, as afraid, as terrified, as much that the future doesn't exist as I ever have in my life. And now I really don't know how to go from here because hospitals, doctors, this fight has been my whole life. And I don't even know how to move on from this. Mm. Um, So the process of that and of somehow step by step being like, okay, now my body and my life really is up to me. Like really the doctors have done everything that they can. And, um, 
now it's up to me to figure out what even I want my life to be. You know, I've tried to play by other people's rules. I've tried to play by society's rules of it's important to look a certain way. It's important to achieve certain things. And I just knew that it didn't mean anything, you know, Mm -hmm. it never got me. Mm -hmm. Did, did feeling that feel good? Like, did you, did you realize that and feel like, okay, and now I feel like I'm starting to feel and find out what's important in my life or what, like, was it really challenging going through that, trying to figure that out too, because I imagine that's really hard. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was both. It was like, okay, everything that I've thought about what was important and the people that I've trusted to tell me what's important in life and what to achieve, they don't necessarily, cause none of us know what we're doing. Right. So they obviously were just doing the best they could. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I just knew I'm like, oh, none of these things are, are it for me, you know, and, and in through the whole process, I was completely ignoring how my body felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in a way it opened up something for me where, I mean, I went through a very, very intense depression that I, I was very, very suicidal and I, I didn't think I was going to come out of that. Um, but there was that little opening of like, well, maybe there's another way to live, you know, and maybe by working through this, you can help illuminate that for other people because that's the light that we were talking about. The insight that you have when you go through these these experiences, I knew from a young age, what mattered. Like Mm -hmm. I knew, I knew that being kind and like being caring and, you know, the hugs that you give little kids when they're going through cancer, I saw how much that mattered, you know, and no one else really understood that because they were all living this life that was more, it wasn't, mortality wasn't such a big part of their life. So they didn't Mm. understand necessarily the impact of empathy or care or compassion or all these things, but I knew, you know, so this whole time I kind of knew that none of these external things were going to make me happy. And, um, maybe by really, really coming into my own, I could carve a new path for myself and, help other people in the process. So that was really my guiding force. I don't, I wouldn't be here if I didn't have that in my head. Mm-hmm. How, how did you, how did you get out of that depression? Like going from suicidal ideation and being in such a dark place. Um, like what was that, what was that process like? Yeah. So it's really been the last 10 years, um, of a journey for me. I think yoga has always been really, really integral to my healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's for me, it was often because we talked about before about how like the hospital walls are just, it's very hard to heal in an environment that feels so sterile and lack, there's like a lack of humanity there. Um, so I started to notice, oh wait, um, when I'm in a yoga studio, and I'm connecting with my body in a little bit of a different way, how do I feel? And when I'm in an environment, um, you know, that's where I met Leah, like at a a, a Himsa yoga studio, which for a lot of us felt like a home. It Mm. felt like for so many of us that were struggling with trauma, um, we just were accepted there and we were loved there. And we, it was, there was just like a friendly, happy environment. And I think just finding those spaces, finding people that were interested in spirituality, that were interested in mental health, that understood our humanity from a more integrative perspective, Mm. Um, finding creative people. Like I grew up in a very competitive environment where everyone kind of wanted to be a professional. And there was this like one track where you could go and being like, oh, there's other ways to live your life. And like, you know, oh, maybe I'm just okay, like I'm a really deeply feeling person. Maybe I'm a creative person. Oh, I've been journaling my whole life and writing stories like, oh, this is really cool. And this is something I can explore. And this is something that can give me meaning. And even if it isn't assessed on a test, it's, it matters to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So like slowly shifting my values, meeting cool people who um, I could kind of realize how many ways there are to live. Mm -hmm. Um, it's Plant. crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy that creativity isn't cultivated more in that sense because I feel the exact same way. Like mm-hmm. I was like, on like, you got to be on that competitive track to yeah. like, you know, what what type of professional are you going to be? A a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist? Like, those are the options. But but like, I it took me a really long time to realize that I'm more passionate about 
you know, the arts and being creative. And I wish I would have explored that more as a kid. And, <laughs> and, you know, with yoga, when I did my yoga teacher training, um, I, the one like profound feeling that I can remember from, uh, when I was leaving the place was, oh, no matter how things, how bad things get in life, I can always come back here and connect to this mm. and that'll be a reset for me. And it, yeah, it's like to this day, I'm like, do I need to, do I need to go back? Like I'm always checking in with myself. Like I'm going to do it. Do I need to go back? Maybe it'd be a good idea. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. So I just was like, wait a second, you know, maybe I'm not getting what I need from what the, you know, I found even talk therapy a certain point. It was like, okay, I can intellectualize things and I can, I almost Mm. felt like a lot of therapy for me was for some reason, I mean, there's a lot of lawyers in my family too, so I must have this in me. It was like I was building a case and trying to convince the therapist why I was fucked up. Why right. I was, yeah. you know, right. I was right. trying to yeah. prove yeah. them wrong or something. It was really weird. And I think just opportunities to kind of get out of that conceptualization and analysis. Um, and, you know, people that experience depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addictions, tend to have high, like there's a high IQ rate in that group of people. Like it's not people that don't understand things. It's sometimes people that think too much, you know? So like just being like, okay, you're not going to use your brain for this. Like none of us are getting out of life alive. So we can talk about the statistics of things that we can harp on what's negative and what's wrong with ourselves (laughs) and with others and with the world. And it's very addictive to do so. Mm. But like, what can I do in this moment? Can I connect with my breath? Can I connect with my body in a way that's compassionate? And starting to do that for myself and then really starting to teach that to other people and seeing the power that I had as a healer, you know, that like mm. I could really help people um, mm. and starting to kind of grow into that role and say, okay, like this is my definition of success mm. that I'm cultivating for myself, um, coaching people with chronic health issues, with mental health issues through embodiment, through getting out of our head a little bit and getting into journaling, getting into creating, getting into just connecting on a human to human level. Mm. How do you how do you go about doing the coaching that you do? Sure. So um I will like a lot of the stuff that I do is within groups. So for example, I have this sorry, preteen or teen preteen um girl yoga embodiment self-esteem program that really like took off actually during the pandemic because I really saw um, this huge need. It was like, finally, people were kind of starting to talk about this stuff that I've been harping on about the importance of mental health and the mm-hmm. connection between the mind and the body and all that stuff. And so, um, I started to, my background is in education. Uh, so I was like, okay, I want to design programming for, for young girls, um, to start to, to not let these ideas fester in our brain about, first of all, that we're different than other people, that we have to compare ourselves to other people, that our weight or our appearance defines us, to get more into our body and how we feel and allow ourselves to feel these feelings, allow ourselves to figure out tools and supports that make us feel safe um, in the support of, of others rather than like just being stuck alone. So mm. I do a lot of like groups with, with teens and then also with adults. Um, one-on-one, it's a lot about just, you know, what I felt from the healthcare perspective was that they saw me through the lens of the disease. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's always like, okay, who are you in the most holistic sense? What are things that you're dealing with? And how can we provide a strategy and support using yoga, breath work, mindfulness, journaling, whatever supports work for you in order Mm. to get you to those goals. And I will just be here as a support, but like from a very much non-expert approach. I think that's part of the problem too in our systems is like, oh, you're the expert and you're in charge of my body or telling me how to feel or what I feel or what, you know, rather than Mm. becoming curious about the actual experience of of the patient or the person. Mm-hmm. How can people find you and find the work that you that you offer? Sure. So um, they can find me through my website, montanaskirka.com, M-O-N-T-A-N-A period S-K-U-R-K. No, sorry. Now I'm going to my email. Montana, <laughs> just my name, M-O-N-T-A-N-A, my last name, S-K-U-R-K-A.com. 
And you can follow me on Instagram. You can, I mean, I think that's a pretty like unique name. So you could kind of just find me by looking me up. Yeah. We'll, we'll put the, a link to your website in the show notes. Um, Montana, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to sit down with us and to bring us through your life journey to, to, you know, give us even just a, a, a glimpse at some of the things that you've learned along your way. And, uh, I want to say thank you for, for that, for this conversation, but also thank you for the work that you do because it is, it is deeply valuable and, and very important. And, uh, this has been a real, real honor Mm -hmm. and a real treat. Thank you so much. That was our conversation with Montana. Hope you enjoyed that, folks. Such a lovely chat. Um, and uh, that's it. That's it for this week. We're, and we're coming at you three times a week, folks. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So, so glad you're joining us on these wonderful and ex- insightful journeys. If you've been supporting the podcast thus far, uh, we want to say thank you. You can be supporting by listening on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave a rating and review, or you could just hit that follow button on Spotify. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can send us a message or an email, letters at sickboypodcast.com. Who knows, if you send the right thing, we might read it on a Feel Good Friday episode. And if you want to be a guest on the show, you can always apply, sickboypodcast.com slash contact. There's a future guest form there, and uh, we're chipping away at it. There's well over 2,000 people that have applied to be on the show, so... Be patient. Uh, And that is it for this week. So thank you so much. Uh, I already said that. What am I saying right now? Oh, yeah, right. The podcast is brought to you by me, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever. Our manager is Jeffrey Lonis. Uh, The sound design is by our buddy Donovan, the Meerkat Morgan, all the way over on Prince Edward Island. And, of course, thank you to Take Part for the theme music. And for the third time, that is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.